This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glisic, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Orly Friedman about her new book, Memory Activism and Digital Practices After Conflict, Unwanted Memories. Orly Friedman is Associate Professor at the Faculty of Media and Communications at Singidun University in Belgrade, where she has the Center for Comparative Conflict Studies. She's also the Academic Director of the School of International Training Learning Center in Belgrade. Her interdisciplinary research focuses on critical peace and conflict studies, memory politics, and digital memory activism. In addition to her book, Memory Activism and Digital Practices of the Conflict, that we'll talk about today, her recent works also include chapters in Agency in Transnational Memory Politics and in Palgrave Encyclopedia of Peace and Conflict Studies. Orly, welcome to the show. Hi, Eva. Thank you for having me. Uh, Orly, I wonder if you could uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, I think your introduction pretty much uh, covers it. Uh, I I have been based in Belgrade for almost uh, two decades now, where I teach uh, in the politics department of the Faculty of Media and Communications, and also, as you mentioned, head the learning center of the School of International Training, SAT. Uh, In my academic background, I received my PhD at the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution, as called at the time at George Mason University, now the Carter Center. Uh, And prior to that, I was a student at uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem for my undergraduate studies and my graduate degree from Tel Aviv University. So... um, in my uh, work and background, I'm very interested in uh, thinking comparatively about conflicts and uh, in this particular work about the meeting point of memory, politics and conflicts. Yes, um, in your book that we're going to talk about today, um, you really focus on tracing this emergence of memory activism in the aftermath of conflict and war, and, and you focus specifically on Serbia after Yugoslav wars um, in the 1990s. Um, How did you become interested in this area of research? And in the case of Serbia specifically, you note in your book that often you would get this question in Serbia, how come you're here? (laughs) So how did you chose Serbia as your, and and form Yugoslavia as your field of, of research interest? Yeah. Okay, that's a that's a very very big question. I'll try to kind of uh, enter it from different uh, entry points that you offer. I still get this question often by the right. way, <laughs> to how come you're here, how come yeah. you stay. Uh, initially, my entry point to uh, my academic work here was my interest in anti-war activism in Serbia in the nineties, 
and also very much in very understudied phenomena at the time, the conscientious objectors and those uh, who refused to take arms and go to war. Uh, so that was initially my PhD project that started in the early 2000s. Now, what uh, I, one would ask, how? so how come Serbia and how come uh, I uh, came to this very much from uh, the first years of the Second Intifada in Israel, where this comparison between Serbia and Israel I found very much uh, fascinating and interesting. And again, understudied. There were a lot of comparative work at the time, placing, say, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with the Cyprus or apartheid South Africa or uh, Northern Ireland. A lot of writings uh, at the time, uh, very little with uh, the former Yugoslavia. And I think for my generation, the breakup of Yugoslavia, the violent breakup of Yugoslavia was something that shaped our worlds at the time, especially once I got out of Israel and entered a PhD in a sense of, of the legacies of this, uh, the, the wars of the, of the breakup of Yugoslavia. Now, more personally, I would say, and that has to do with my own uh, positionality, uh, I would relate that to my mnemonic upbringing, if you want, or my mnemonic socialization, uh, growing up in Israel in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, very much being indoctrinated <laughs> into thinking about our pasts, uh, but also the present as it was shaping our political awareness, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the whole uh, Palestinian narrative of 1948, which was con concealed completely from our awareness, the, the Nakba uh, was concealed from our landscapes, but very much also from our textbooks, conversations, for sure calendars, commemorations. Um, and then being a student in the 1990s, and also kind of going through my own political education and political awareness and entered or entering also activist circles in those years, uh, this kind of opened an entire unknown world to me, and especially this uh, understanding of alternative commemorations, uh, which then became very kind of... Uh, present in the memory scapes in Israel-Palestine, yet when I entered my PhD project, one of my commitments intellectually were not to write about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And uh, my work in political education has le actually led me to work with young people from the former Yugoslavia, hence uh, the, the interest then in first anti-war activism, as I mentioned, which in the aftermath of my PhD, in the empirical research I've done, even after, has led me very much to the understanding and shaping of this topic of memory activism. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really fascinating how you draw those parallels uh, between these two regions and, and how you came about um, to focus on, on, on these events, the 1990s in former Yugoslavia. Um, your, your research your kind of is situated within this broader area of memory studies, but you specifically are interested in memory activism. C can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by memory activism? 
Yes. So nowadays, the term memory activism is actually used by many of us in the field who write and engage with these challenges as we see them as studying and writing about the meeting point between memory and activism, right? And actually, the idea that memory and its construction involves labor is hardly new. Um, if I go back to Elizabeth Jelin's work that has shaped my thinking about the social disputes over memory, she's written even more than two decades ago about, uh, as she and I quote, like human beings who labor on and with memories of the past. And she looks, of course, at uh, Argentina and other post-dictatorship societies in the southern cone. Um, and so in the book here, I try to kind of advance our discussions in the field when it comes to memory work and later on the works on memory activism. And particularly, I propose a framework for the study of mnemonic practices as seen in memory activism through engagement with alternative commemorations and the analysis of the rituals and practices of memory activists, more specifically examine the ways in which memory activists as local actors claim agency and space by establishing alternative commemorative events marked on alternative calendars. So this framework of looking at the calendar as a site of memory, but as a site of alternative and counter-memory alternative uh, commemorative events. Um, and more specifically, I'm interested in memory activism as a branch of anti-war activism or what Stanley Cohen called anti-denial activism. The question of denial was important for me. It was actually one of my entry points to the study of Serbia and activism in Serbia in the 90s through the presence. Uh, and then there's the works. I, I kind of uh, try to continue and develop works on uh, and discussions uh, on memory activism as we understand the commemoration of contested pasts, but outside the channels of the state. So off the state channels, as in the works, for example, of Ifat Gutman, and very much uh, building on Anne Rigney's memory activism nexus, and particularly developing uh, the thinking and understanding of memory activism, and then as it shapes to practices uh, of what we call memory of activism, which we can speak about a little bit yes. later. Mm -hmm. yeah, yes, this memories of activism are uh, um, and I, I guess point to this intergenerational aspect of your of your study of these traumatic events and how they um, are remembered by different different generations. And you start the examination of memory activism in Serbia um, by focusing on the generation of activists who were actually adults when the conflict first started in in former Yugoslavia. So it broke out in 1991. Can you tell us a bit about who? members of this first generation of activists or memory activists were in Serbia and, and how did this, their form of, of um, activism, what was the, the, the form that their activism uh, uh, most, most often took? Yeah, so, so first uh, maybe a, a word on this generational lens that I chose to, to use. Uh, 
this is very much kind of shapes my methodological approach throughout the book um, and proposing uh, this generational lens as a means to actually delve deeper and gain more insights into the shifts and nuances in the practices of memory activists, right? And I think the fact that uh, this work has... Uh, uh, spent over a longer period of time really allowed me to trace these uh, shifts that are still ongoing, I would say, probably. So as, as you, as in your question, really the, the first generation is, is and, I, and I look mostly at the group of the women in black and their street actions and street activism, because that's the main interest that I took in thinking of commemorative practices as they also appear and shape urban public spaces, right? But at the same time, it's a much larger a circle of activists. Some of them have withdrawn into the offices in doing, even during the 90s already, documentation of war crimes as those were happening and in the aftermath of the, after 2000, continue to to spread that. But all of that is the kind of, has to do with the dissemination of alternative knowledge. And the first generation, indeed, they came of age during Yugoslavia, some of these, uh, the leaders of these uh, groups were uh, mostly women, feminist women. Uh, some of them were already in their, let's say, uh, in midlife, uh, in, in a sense, and uh, uh, so, sort of the, the violent breakup of Yugoslavia as it begins kind of takes them to the streets in anti-war actions. And also, you know, there's this distinction between those who were against the war and against militarism and and, uh, and took this position against nationalism and there were those against the regime and these were not always kind of the same, right? So and from, from this particular group that was engaged with anti-war activism during the 90s, was I, what I saw emerging was after 2000, after the end of the let's say, what we call the Milosevic uh, era, uh, sort of the, the common sense say was that October 5th happened, but October 6th never <laughs> right. sort of arrived, right? And and therefore, they begin to engage with, with the past and, and with the contestations about uh, this past that for them is very much was witnessed by them and, and part of their own experiences, hence also their kind of uh, slogan, not in my name, which is one among many slogans of the women in black, which which I understand also as a generational statement, right, which the next generation can no longer claim as such. Um, And so, so, yeah. I was wondering if you could maybe just um, share with our audience who are not familiar with with, um, this history, um, who are women in black? Yeah, so the women in black began uh, in the early 90s in Belgrade, um, as again, as uh, emerging from previous uh, feminist circles and uh, uh, actually still in Yugoslavia, the beginning of uh, feminist 
uh, activism, I would say, but very much from the beginning, also taking the uh, position of anti-militarism and anti-nationalism. Uh, of course, their work also entails issues that have to do with patriarchy and gender mm. equality and very uh, clear claims at the time since, since the early 90s against the war. And they model after the Israeli women in black. Yeah. Where That's another main... another very interesting point of yeah connection there. Yes, yeah. this was actually one of my entry points. I, mm. I mm. Uh, from the women in black in Israel and uh, from uh, so if you do activism against the occupation in Israel against it, it's a question of generational belonging. But at least in earlier days, the women in black were very central and important in their Friday demonstrations around the country against the Israeli occupation, uh, and so the women. In black were taking some of the practices, which was very interesting for me, the silent vigil, the one-hour silent vigil, uh, in, and they were uh, practicing this as against the war in mm. in downtown Belgrade, right, uh, at the height, let's say, of the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Then this was my earlier work, also tracing what happened to their Uh, practices, for example, when they couldn't take the streets during the NATO bombing or what leads to the war in Kosovo, right? So there's also different shapes of activism during the 90s and different practices that were they were doing. But very much from there, one hour silent vigil against the war grew uh, and, and has de- developed later on af- during already the, like the 90s, but very much afterwards, this kind of what I see as the alternative CV calendar, right? As placing yeah. on an alternative calendar, alternative to the state calendar, uh, events that are otherwise silenced or unwanted, what I call the unwanted mm-hmm. memories, mm-hmm. and still the same practice of the silent vigil, Uh, with very clear claims that they hold in their banners and uh, also one of their practices, again, taken from the original women in black in Israel, which also have chapters around the world, but they have taken it in a very interestingly and rigid way of you never respond to passers-by. So even if you're, if people right. curse you and, and spit at you or what have you, they, you stand silent and, and you make your message clear. And, and this was, uh, uh, among other things, what I analyzes the the works of the first generation of memory activists and of course the interesting moment is when different generations would join these practices over time and how then they kind of have get their nuances or or change a little bit yeah i was i was quite fascinated to to see that uh connection between the feminist um activism and and histories of, of feminism and anti-war movement that sort of happened at this point um i was wondering if you could just reflect maybe on one thing on one point that you made that um anti-regime and anti-war activism do not necessarily overlap or those sentiments don't always overlap in this moment can you maybe expand a little bit what is what you mean by that Yeah, I mean, I think this this was already uh, a discussion that I I wrote about in initially in my dissertation, and then kind of also uh, led uh, continue to develop as I was thinking about memory activism. Well, there were uh, the nineties as 
as was well written about in Serbia, are, is also a decade of uh, civic action and very large protests. Uh, and uh, as Marina Blagojevic has written about mm. it in her uh, uh, important work in Serbia, one can trace, she says, the 90s through That's so right. the, the demonstrations from 91, 96, 7, and initially, eventually in the 2000s, right? And so in these uh, different uh, years and different uh, leadership that has led these demonstrations from students' demonstrations to the 2000s, let's say, in Otpor. The main uh, claim, and I discussed that in the book, was kind of uh, mostly to get rid of that regime that was seen as creating this abnormal life in Serbia, right? And uh, especially in the late, you know, when it culminates in 2000s and the culmination of that is October 5th, you have a lot of actors in the street in front of the parliament building and there's a lot of political agendas there from very (laughs) right-wing to very left-wing, right? To uh, at the time, what brought them, what allowed them to stand there together was, of course, the 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 insistence of getting rid of that regime. But you know, the women in black, when they were there with the rainbow flag, with the pacha flag, they were always saying we were there, and they could contain us, right? But we did not agree necessarily with those in the front lines that. Uh, came with a different uh, political agenda, right? Yeah. So, so for example, in the analysis of Otpor and in speaking earlier on to Otpor activists, many of them were not anti-nationalist, for example, necessarily, mm. or didn't mm. take that position against the war, mm. uh, necessarily. And also in the aftermath, when engaging with these questions, for example, the legacies of... Uh, uh, an event like Srebrenica or Vukovar or concealing the silences about uh, war crimes in Kosovo, these were not on the agenda of those anti-regime protests at all, as they Mm. themselves uh, attest. Yes, that's that's very much the case that uh, you've pointed out in your book that uh, this movement, anti-regime movement, was far more layered and complex than um, what we necessarily um, acknowledge and of course that is reflected in the memories and the memory cultures um, that that uh, come after um, you mentioned uh, this phenomenon that you uh, termed alternative civic calendars can you tell us about what, what you mean by that term and um, share some of the examples of these alternative civic um, uh, holidays or or, or com- memorials yeah commemoration. So uh, yeah. my, my thinking about calendars, as I mentioned, very much came initially from from being a part of these kind of activist circles in Israel has to do with alternative, the emergence of alternative commemorations in uh, the 90s. But here in Serbia, what was interesting very much was that the creation of an alternative calendar needs to, of course, begin with looking at the calendar, right, itself, the state-sponsored calendar. And this also goes back to works of Eviatar Zubovel, who offers us to think about the 
the calendar as a site of memory, right? And mm. the calendar, of course, the cycle of the year, the, the, the mnemonic communities as they choose their dates mm-hmm. on the calendar and the nation and the nation state would be one of those. And so first it requires, uh, which, which is part of what I do in the book, is to look at the, at the, at the new post-Yugoslav calendar of Serbia, which very much is still emerging. Right, even last year there was a new holiday introduced. There's the flag, and still, who knows where it's going? So, so as a, doing research in this fair is very interesting because you, I was I was actually tracing that new calendar as it was becoming, right. Uh, right. which is pretty fascinating. It's not set. It's not done yet. It's still kind of uh, in the making. The alternative calendars placed next to uh, can then be analyzed in light of the, let's say, state-sponsored calendar, because in those that I propose to analyze, it's pretty much taking the events from as relates to the 90s, by the way, we can also analyze other alternative calendars as, for example, those who still celebrate Yugoslav calendar, Yugoslav holidays, these are also now alternative or That's issues right. related mm-hmm. to contestations of World War II. I focus on the contestations of the 90s and then the alternative calendars, in, in a way, it's the choice the the, the to take certain uh, events that otherwise are being denied or completely silenced there for sure you won't find them as they are on the on the calendar of uh, uh, the state calendar today and around them the actual uh, practices that, that create certain rituals right and so in around dates on the calendar you also create certain uh, joint uh, action and rituals that make those kind of repeat uh, themselves year mm. after year and the as i mentioned the women in black in their a alternative civic calendar as they place events from the 90s and insist on certain events that otherwise uh, uh, the new generations would not even hear about or know very little about or know very little about only from the one perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And so the alternative calendar creates the, this kind of a platform for alternative commemorations and rituals, but also the dissemination of alternative knowledge and engagement with that uh, very much. You asked for examples. So, so, and, and the Women in Black, by the way, also, they actually print a calendar. They have their own right. calendar, which they give. But I, of course, understand it as a much mm-hmm. as, a, as a calendar that, that, that has to do with with the, the actual uh, practices and awareness, let's say, of those who participate in that. I, as, as I argue in the book, the main event around which this calendar is is has been created today goes to uh, the uh, commemoration of uh, Srebrenica, the crimes committed in, in Srebrenica, and the insistence on remembering the victims as victims of genocide, right, in downtown Belgrade, which is otherwise still officially denied. Uh, and they usually... Um, 
gather for a silent vigil on Republic Square on the 10th of July, and then they participate in the commemorations in Potocari on July 11th. But throughout their the year, they also uh, gather on other dates from events such as uh, uh, remembering um, Vukovar or uh, remembering the beginning of the siege on Sarajevo, uh, or more recently remembering uh, Suvareka and the crimes committed in Kosovo in, in the late 90s. Yeah, it, it's fascinating how you describe this space uh, of really unsolidified memories. On the one hand, these new dates that are, people are quite not sure where they're coming from, relating to often uh, kind of distant past or church calendar sometimes, um, or, or completely new uh, form of, of, of uh, holidays, like this day of flag that you note. But on the other hand, the lack of really visibility of some of these dates um, and to the point where right where the newer generations are not even sure what they, or may not be sure what they refer to. Um, I'm interested in this next generation um, that you talk about in, in your book, this um, cohort of memory activists um, who were born in the 1990s, and they may not even have direct memories, or in fact they don't, of these conflicts um, in the early 90s, the start of the Yugoslav Wars. And their memories of conflict are more readily associated with the events in Kosovo, um, the war in Kosovo and the NATO bombardment of, of what was then rump Yugoslavia. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this, this group of memory activists? Yes, so actually in my very early days uh, when I was still doing my research in Belgrade, that was 2004-2005, I came across uh, the Youth Initiative for Human Rights in Serbia, which was then uh, just formed. And that was, uh, uh, since then, they of course became a regional network of uh, of, uh, that exists in in the... uh, post-Yugoslav states uh, today, and they very much also cooperate with each other. In my work, I focus on the youth initiative for human rights in uh, in Serbia, mostly, and their engagement with memory, right? And so they do a lot of other things uh, and a lot of actions, um, yet the, this particular aspect of their memory activism was uh, pretty uh, fascinating to trace as to see how they had to give meaning to the previous actions that were out there already and create those as belonging to their own generations, right? So uh, one of the things I noticed uh, uh, later on is around 2015 when they came with their own uh, slogan, uh, too young to remember, determined never to forget, which kind of sparked my uh, interest in developing further this generational lens yet because in in some ways they couldn't they could relate to some of the existing practices of the first generation yet they had Mm -hmm. to tweak those to as relevant to their own positions and mnemonic upbringings etc and you're uh, indeed if you're born in the 80 in uh, early 90s the wars in Croatia and the wars in Bosnia Herzegovina are not living memories, uh, and possibly the war in Kosovo is something you 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 have a memory right. of 
and particularly the NATO bombing, right? And the 78 days of the NATO bombing is very clearly today positioned on the official calendar of Serbia, yet to even think critically of some of these events mm-hmm. uh, and to uncover the silences of those uh, uh, wars that they have no memory, uh, living memory of, uh, is, is very much the task uh, of those younger mm-hmm. activists, even more so the next generation of those already born even after the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I try to trace was the shift that they're making, the the different entry points and their interpretations and and engagement with these pasts, but also very much with these legacies of these pasts, right? As as they have received as as the younger uh, generation. And and we can talk more about it. One of the things is the the changes in in practices, for example, choosing to commemorate Srebrenica on the 11th of July, the day itself, and instead of going to Potocar itself, staying in Belgrade and still kind of having a commemorative event here. Uh, to also kind of uh, new forms of digital activism where they use hashtags and social media very much to kind of uh, disseminate disseminate alternative uh, uh, knowledge. Yeah, so so uh, you make mention of the this um, actually moving your book from this on-site to online um, memory activism. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit of, more about this concept of hashtag memory activism and, and how some of the examples of, of that you've kind of worked through, yeah. Yeah, so hash, hashtag memory activism, uh, which I put forward as a framework, uh, actually I see as allowing us to trace the growing prevalence of digital memory activism and the online commemorations on social media. So more than me searching for it, it just began to emerge right. <laughs> as I was uh, working and on these issues already. Um, and it's very much, of course, also relates to the connective turn in memory uh, studies, but I would say much more broadly in the social sciences, right? And uh, mm-hmm. um, I define hashtag memory activism as the online commemoration of contested pasts on social media, utilizing hashtag as a mnemonic practice. So for me, the hashtag and hashtag memory activism is actually a mnemonic tactic, and I analyze it as such that enables and even strengthens the creation of alternative platforms for remembrance, very much through the sharing and disseminating of alternative knowledge about contested pasts, and it can be in the midst of conflict, but Mm. of course in the book I'm interested in the aftermath of conflict. So hashtag memory activism uh, and online commemorations are never isolated uh, online actions, right? And we have to approach them and see them as part, uh, uh, as sort of a broader um, analysis of memory politics as it falls also on on site itself. And so there is kind of this, what happens on site, but also let's trace it, allows us to trace it and the actions as they appear online. 
And I would also add, add that maybe hashtag memory activism, um, we, we can see how memory activists actually deploy hashtags, but not only as uh, in order to mobilize people to join them in street actions, mm-hmm. right? And there's literature, a whole literature about hashtag activism <laughs> uh, more broadly, but uh, to a greater, greater extent, uh, hashtag activism is a platform to share and spread alternative knowledge, very much counter memories uh, of difficult pasts or what I analyze as, as unwanted histories and unwanted pasts, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things I find very interesting, if we can give some examples, of course, is sure. if we trace the genealogies of hashtags, right? And this allows us to delve a little bit deeper to uh, the analysis of memory uh, politics. So, for example... In the hashtag, I, I take a number of hashtags and analyze each as a case study from um, Not Our Heroes, which is, a, again, our as the generational belonging of the second generation who are grappling with the legacies of the ICTY and the war criminals and the return yeah. of uh, those from... Uh, uh, Convicted war criminals who returned right, right. to I was, I was yeah, wondering specifically if you could tell us a little bit about Not Our Heroes um, hashtag, because I think when you mentioned your first generation, uh, the slogan that kind of marked that generation is not in our name. And this one, I sort of felt there was a connection with this slogan of the next generation, Not Our Heroes, as well. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that phenomenon of return of these people from uh, the Hague to Serbia, but also other other countries of the region. Right. So, so not nisu nashi heroi, not our heroes, mm. was was a hashtag actually that I, I saw first utilized and used by the Youth Initiative for Human Rights in their regional actions. Right. So this mm. is also kind of my entry point to the next point we can discuss about <laughs> regional memory activism. But not our not our heroes was very interesting to trace at the time when uh, the ICTY's work was coming to an end, the closure of the ICTY, but also as we saw uh, in the entire region, and this is not only in Serbia, convicted war criminals are actually coming back home and being received as war heroes, right? And uh, you could see it in some graffitis in the cities where we live or and, and, and the engagement of memory activists from this position of their generational belonging was very interesting for me. Who is our, not our hero? That's right, that's uh, right. And I, I can read that through uh, the generational lens. But this means that this requires, and that was one of the questions that I asked uh, activists to understand this kind of position of not our hero. Of course, this requires engagement with knowledge about these crimes committed and about this past, which is again available through other means, through commemorative events, but also uh, uh, very Mm. much... uh, uh, engaging mm-hmm. with this uh, knowledge by searching then who are our heroes, right? You have to uh, kind of, uh, f- uh, uh, the spin of that is is to search for <laughs> those who are, uh, 
whose legacies they want to take after or or look at as kind of models for their mm-hmm. uh, engagement as civic actors as young uh, um, younger people in their communities and and that also has to do with the search of course for hope in memory activism which i uh, also kind of write about in the book and so to search for who their heroes are also kind of lays the 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 foundation of memory of activism right so to take the generation the first generation of the anti-war activists Mm. as and their actions and the the price one paid for taking this position in their society is something I I understood they find uh, inspiration in and hope uh, from or in their work as I write about their work on the Merdita do Bardan festival which is a festival that kind of bridges between societies in Kosovo and Serbia, Pristina and Belgrade, the work of the the legacy of a person like Bekim Fehmiu who was let's say, a Yugoslav person and the way his life ended very much kind of they took inspiration in the legacy of his life, not necessarily at his the way it ended. Uh, so not our mm-hmm. heroes kind of tracing that and where does it begin and what are the messages that they're conveying throughout that I see as sort of hashtag memory activism. There's other examples, of course, uh, that I analyze from uh, It Did Happen, like, again, like these contestations of the past, uh, or Sedam Hiliada, the 7,000, uh, the call for the uh, 20th anniversary of uh, of the commemoration of uh, Srebrenica and the... Uh, uh, building on previous work and further uh, that I've done with Katerina Ristich about the white armband day uh, and kind of continuing to think about that as hashtag memory activism. You know, that's um, really fascinating the way that through these hashtags um, you enter this point of hope, which is a, kind of a very important part of, of your, your discussion. Um, but you also touch upon the question of, of regional activism. Uh, your book predominantly focuses on Serbia, but inevitably you broaden that out and explore memory activism in former parts of, of Yugoslavia. Um, tell us a little bit about this evolution of, of regional activist network. Did, did that exist in the first generation? Is that something that happens with the second generation more clearly? Yeah, okay. So as as I said, the the thinking about the region and the re- so there's work on region of memory and regions of memories. There's actually a book that just came up uh, came out about that, but I kind of entered more thinking about the regions of memory activism and memory activists. Of course, the women in black, for them, the region was not, it wasn't a region, it was their country. That's that right. was Yugoslavia, right? So to begin with, in their identities as Yugoslavs, their anti-war position was uh, very much thinking of the region. I mean, I, I remember my early work and in, in interviews about, you know, discovering what happened in Sarajevo during the siege or going back to Sarajevo first time after the war and the, the, the images and impacts of, of that. I don't think they 
thought they used the term the terminology that I'm using as regional memory activism right. for them this was kind of very much uh, one country that uh, um, ended the way it ended very violently I think for the newer generation when you're being uh, born in Serbia mm-hmm. and being a, your mnemonic upbringing is already very very different right so that's to, right to exit the national narrative only or this sphere of Serbia only and begin to move in the region also entails unpacking a lot of what you grew up on and at times even discovering things that you were not aware of. So, of course, it has to do with political education and the rise of political awareness. So so the the notion of thinking of the actions on the regional level, I try to put vis-a-vis other forms of regional corporations, and there are many of those, particularly as related to the 1990s, of course, I am very interested, and that happens, it has to happen on the regional level, and it does uh, when uh, what we see is kind of activists who establish platforms for alternative commemorations uh, that sometimes even mirror each other, right? If you yeah. see uh, the memory of Oluya in the, the Operation Storm, the way it's being celebrated in Croatia and nowadays mourned in in Serbia and of course the politics of that. So in the alternative interaction with that, both in Croatia and in Serbia, sort of activists almost need each other to 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 make through their uh, action as alternative commemorative events, but also informing what I borrow from Atena Tanasio's work, what she calls the networks of commemorative solidarity. Right and camaraderie and sort of this possibility to engage with memory and discussions of memory, not only from the position of being a victim, right, and politics of victimizations and the narratives of that, but actually in in offering other platforms to engage with this past from the position of, let's say, empathy. And um, instead of dehumanizing the other, actually showing, uh, remembering victims and humanizing them, which otherwise is not available in this broader sphere of uh, commemorations as it's being shaped in the entire region. And that, of course, is not unique to the post-Yugoslav region and this competition over victimization uh, or the inability to see the other side as a victim too, right? So, so these kind of actions very much I, I discuss as in the broader sense as these kind of platforms for commemorative solidarity. And then there's the, the particular shapes of that in as, as we see it here in this part of the world. Uh, of course, to go back to the initial interest in memory activism too, engage with anti-denial work and anti-war or for even work for peace of of course uh, anti-memory activism there can be understood in a much broader sense but this particular angle of that 
to promote, let's say, more tolerance or more compassion or empathy. This is something I think is missing from yeah. uh, the discussion uh, very Absolutely. often. And I, I kind of saw the, the need to bring it into the, the, this framework uh, in, yeah. in my writing. Yeah, I, I want to touch upon this point, which I think is probably the hardest point in your book and in, in, in thinking about this this. Um, phenomenon of memory activism and there is the question of um, how do we recognize the suffering of the other side and how do we move towards what, what you've termed um, commemorative so- solidarity I mean how do we talk about Srebrenica right the genocide of Muslim population committed by Serbian forces but not talk about Oluja which is the exodus or the storm uh, exodus of Serbian civilians from from Croatia um, I guess I was wondering if you can share some of these ex- examples of strategies that are used by memory activists to create that sense of empathy, to create, to move beyond these ethno-national forms of engagement with these legacies and, and shape some kind of a common regional memory scape. Right. So I would say the practices themselves that, that I, as I discuss in the book and as I was able to follow over the years, of course, there, there is the actual silent vigil as a practice, as street actions, right? Yeah. But the actual going, crossing the borders today, we're mm. talking about crossing mm. national borders. And I think the crossing of the border is also crossing on your of your own imagination and your own boundaries uh, if you think of of where people grow up and how they're being kind of uh, educated mnemonically speaking into these uh, frameworks even going to Potocari on July 11th, I, I analyzed as a practice of, uh, even if you, so, so the women in black go there and they stand and identify themselves as coming from Belgrade and being against the war. But in the earlier days, for example, the er- younger activists who went there didn't necessarily stand there and identify themselves. They blended into the crowd. Right. There is a religious ceremony. There is a ceremony that follows. But even... The, the challenge in doing that or uh, or the the strength in in doing that in showing mm-hmm. solidarity with the other um uh, is something i was able uh, to trace and there are different example of that as as you mentioned in your own work has to do with omarska the same kind mm-hmm. of the practices of going there are so these kind of alternative dates on the calendar again become also regional and uh, mm-hmm. meeting points for different commemorative actions and practices. The White Armband Day, as such, where people kind of show their uh, empathy and solidarity by an action that happens online, right? So this mm-hmm. is also mm-hmm. kind of a, a practice and a tactic that I show uh, to uh, educational work that takes young people, say, to visit uh, unmarked or marked places where crimes were uh, committed. And again, very often, if you grew up in your own town or a region you may have not heard of those or you heard of those only in relation to your own victims and again this is we see at the regional level and I think the work of memory activists in sort of enhancing these practices of 
empathy and solidarity and camaraderie also requires kind of meeting each other in a sense of crossing the border and crossing your own boundaries in, in our that, minds or and imaginations. That's right. So it's both physical but also imaginary uh, crossings in a sense. Um, I was, it was really fascinating to read the, the, the way that these um, activism and uh, collaboration that has to do with memory and um, the region's violent past also um, evolves into other lines um, of activism. And you mentioned environmentalism and anti-fascist uh, movements as well and feminism. So we slightly go back to where we started in a sense where we talk about the, the emergence of anti-war activism out of um, other forms of activism. And now we see that those connections kind of re-emerging uh, uh, again, so I was wondering, where do you see the future of this this activist practice in the region? Does it broaden out in different directions? I guess you mean particularly of memory activism in the region. Me- yeah, memory activism. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, because what it seems I that they are moving yeah into other areas of yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's what what I try. Like the the one of the chapters in the book is is grappling with this challenge. Like and I and I think that question of activists who ask themselves this question, like, are are we going to be able to continue in this work or will it die out? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people are grappling with with finding hope and seeing the fruits of their work. Uh, while the reality becomes sort of uh, less accommodating to their claims, right? Uh, in that yeah. sense, I finished the book in, in discussing the unwanted past seen and unresolved present, right? It's it's ongoing. It's, it's not over. Uh, I want to uh, be optimistic and think that if this continues to evolve and and if the younger generation the younger activists will also become engaged and and be able to put forward their claims there there can be um, Mm. the, the continuation of that but placing memory activism next to other forms of civic activism was important for me to do for a number of reasons. Mm. Among others, sometimes there's lack of internal solidarity between these activists, you know. They don't won't necessarily support each other mm. in their actions and claims, and there are plenty of, of those today. On the other hand, of course, when you see that happening, how a group that actually is committing to deal with issues of uh, the right to the city and environmental issues also see the importance of uh, acknowledging the work being done by uh, first the anti-war activists and the anti-nationalists and then what became the the memory activists. So in that sense, I I think the... I, I expect maybe to see more engagement with memory of activism as it will shape actions in the present and in the future. For activists who don't necessarily only deal with the past, Mm. you know, this uh, uh, tension between looking backwards or looking to the future, but what there is to learn from what was done so far over Mm. a number of decades of activism and the legacy of that, um, 
and also the, the, the weaknesses and the mistakes of this yes. uh, uh, movement, which again uh, needs to be discussed as, as mm-hmm. part of uh, uh, looking forward maybe. But I think there's, there's little of that that we see now, say, mm-hmm. in <clears throat> urban public spaces. There's no street names. There's no names right. of, of squares, of, of gathering places. So this work also kind of lays the ground to say, wait, there, there's some, we're building knowledge. We have practices that were done already. Uh, how do we move forward from here? To stop mm. and do that, of course, is not always what you have time for and energy for. But I think if we see, if we, and that's, I think, the value of sort of this ethnographic work that traces this work over mm. time. It allows uh, uh, more to emerge than just what we see on the headlines, right? Yeah, that's 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 right. Um, Oli, thank you so much for sharing your research um, with, our, with our audience. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us what are you working on at the moment? Yeah, so again, thanking you, Eva, for having me, and uh, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you today. At the moment, uh, there's a few things I'm uh, working on or trying to work on. <laughs> uh, sometimes depends on the day how it looks. Uh, currently, I'm co-editing a book with uh, Sarah Ginsburger that deals with commemorations during covid uh-huh. <laughs> we, are, uh, we we both started uh, tracing some uh, emergence of the memory, kind of thinking of what will be the memory of COVID, but also what happened to mm-hmm. commemorative events uh, during COVID itself. And it's going mm-hmm. to be a book that will come out next year with uh, Palgrave. And we have uh, about 12 chapters, each discussing different uh, geographies and practices. Uh, wow. So uh, very interesting uh, work there. Th- uh, what led me to this particular work was, uh, and that's another thing I'm working on now, again, continuing to think of alternative commemorations and alternative commemorative practices. Mm-hmm. But now, what if I can look at it more broadly and bring more regions and cases into the discussion. So one of the um, uh, groups or practices I'm looking at is the joint Israeli-Palestinian Memorial Day commemoration, Mm -hmm. which was actually what first brought me into this alternative (laughs) commemorations. It's a joint Israeli-Palestinian commemoration that went online completely during COVID, but even before COVID went online because of the inability of Palestinians to enter Israel and particularly Tel Aviv. And so, again, searching for thinking of hope and uh, alternative commemoration as as a practice uh, that creates sort of a platform for hope in a place where many activists already feel pretty defeated Right, and and so that's something I'm trying to think of, as well as the grievability, and uh, more kind of to bring from Judith Butler's work on the ability again to see the other, and and the sort of practice compassion mm. and empathy. Mm. Um, yeah, so these are kind that, of the main two two things I'm yeah. currently. Well, working they on. yeah, both sound really fascinating, and um, I hope that you will be back on New Books Network once those uh, pieces of research are are out and ready. Uh, Orly, thank you so much again for um, being with us today and talking about your work. Um, it was a real pleasure pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Eva.